All right. Good morning, everybody. We are so glad that you are here on this beautiful Sunday morning. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? If you think about it, there could not be a more important question. If we would slow down and consider, it just might be one of the most important questions, if not the most important question that you could ever be asked in your life. Who is Jesus? And most importantly, who is Jesus to you? Of the many questions that you will be asked throughout your life, maybe hundreds, literally, if you are the parents of toddlers, thousands a minute, you get asked a lot of questions, right? There's a lot of questions that we ask and are asked in our lifetime. Very few of those questions have eternal significance. This is one of them. Who is Jesus? Because the answer to that question is going to determine not only the meaning and the purpose and the impact and the significance of our life now on this earth, but really our trajectory for eternity, forever. And so today would be a really good day to slow down and pause and reflect. If you haven't asked yourself that question in a while, not, not just talking about going through the motions, you know, the, the Sunday school answer, you know, Jesus, you know, he's God, that's, that, that's great. That's what you've heard. That's when you've been taught, but is it real for you is the question I want to ask you today. Is it real for you? When you give your answer to that question, have you thought about it recently? Have you taken the time to, to consider the longest distance any of us will travel is from here to here? From here to here, is it primarily a, a, an idea that you agree with or an intellectual exercise? Or when you get asked that question, who is Jesus? Is it something that's the deepest part of who you are that's rooted down deep inside? Today would be a really good day to pause and reflect and think about that question. Because today in our story, Jesus is making it clear, believe it or not, without saying a word, exactly who he is. In fact, Jesus thought that this was such an important question about his identity that he ex asking that exact same question that I just asked you, he asked that to his disciples in Mark chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you, let's start a little bit before our reading today, Mark chapter 8. Go ahead and open up in your Bibles. If you've got your Bible uh, from the church here, that's awesome. You can grab a free one in the back and take it home with you today or your phone or your Bible app, whatever you've got. Mark chapter 8 is where we're going to start. Eventually we'll get to Mark chapter 9. We're continuing our ser uh, sermon series today. We're actually wrapping it up called Miracle March. It's the end uh, of the month because we're ending the sermon series because it's the end of the month, uh, the 31st today. And so uh, today is also our family worship today. So great to have all the kids uh, in the house today. We're really glad uh, that you're here. So a chapter before our reading is Mark chapter 8. And the reason we're starting in Mark chapter 8 is it really sets the stage for Mark chapter 9. The entire book of Mark is taking a pivot here in chapters 8 and 9. Everything leading up to this was the miracles, and after, uh, starting with chapters 8 and 9, we're really looking at who Jesus is. I was thinking about that word pivot and that idea, and all. this is how weird my sermon prep is, people. I was thinking of that iconic scene from the TV show Friends when they're moving the couch up the stairs and coming around. It's pivot! Pivot, right? Turn to your neighbor and say pivot. Tell them that right now. Pivot. Okay, now just the kids. Kids, you listening nice and loud. All the kids say pivot. One, two, three. Oh, nice. That's good. Just wanted to make sure everybody's with me, right? The entire book of Mark is taking a pivot now. Chapters, everything before chapter eight was all about the miracles of Jesus, and now we're pivoting to answer the primary question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? 
Jesus. Mark moves from the miracles of Jesus and what he did, and now it's going to get personal. And it's here in chapter 8 that we hear Jesus stop and ask his disciples that are with him a very, well, it seems like a pretty simple question. So chapter 8, verse 13, he says this. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Son of Man is one of the many names that Jesus uses for himself. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? In other words, Jesus is asking, like, what's the word on the street out there? What's the, what's the buzz that's out there? Who do people say I am? And of course, when you just get to repeat what everybody else is saying, it's easy. So I would imagine all the disciples start chiming in. They have no problem. You know, some of them are saying, well, uh... Jesus, you know, some say you're like John the Baptist, come back or something, or the next prophet. Maybe you're like Jeremiah or Elijah or something uh, like that. One of the prophets. You know, in other words, this is what everybody else is saying. This is second and, and third-hand knowledge of what they're saying. But everything was about to change. In the midst of the chatter and the disciples, yeah, Jesus, you know, just talking, everything like that. I would imagine Jesus just kind of steps in the middle of the circle, looks the guys right in the eyes and says, okay, but who do you say I am? Let's read it together up on the screen. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Oh, things just got really personal now. I know what everybody else is saying, but what about you? And I would imagine it was like crickets for a while, you know, like all the disciples are like, do-do-do, you know, like nobody wants to answer, right? And they're all kind of staring down at their shoes and everything like that. It's easy when you're going along with the crowd, but what happens when Jesus looks you in the eyes and says, what about you? Right now, here this morning, March 31st, 2019, Jesus is looking at you saying, who do you say I am? Not what you've read, not just what everybody else thinks, not just what you've been taught and you've gone along with, who do you say that I am? This just got personal. Certainly at the time of Jesus, there was a lot of confusion about his identity as well, just as much confusion as there is today. Some thought he was a prophet. Others thought he was a, a, another leader of maybe a, a military rebellion uh, against the Romans and all of those kind of coups had been smashed and, and squashed in recent years. Some thought he was maybe a prophet. The Jews, of course, wanted him to be a great military uh, leader and kick out the Romans. Some people thought he was a magician, uh, maybe just a miracle worker because that's all he's been doing. But this is why Jesus is about to make it personal because he doesn't want anybody to miss the point. And we're going to come back to the end of that story in Mark chapter 8 at the end of the sermon today. But the reason I start in Mark chapter 8 is because the question that Jesus poses in Mark chapter 8 is answered in Mark chapter 9. You tracking with me? It's like Mark is setting these up for a reason. He's, he's building, building some building blocks here. Mark chapter 8 is the foundation, sets the question for the answer that Jesus gives in Mark chapter 9 without saying a word. It's by what Jesus does, not just what he says, that answers that question. And how Jesus does this now, as we turn the page to Mark chapter 9, is he answers this question about his identity by pointing us to some signs. Well, Mark really sets up the story in this way. And there's three key signs that I don't want you to miss here in Mark chapter 9 that point us to that reality, right? Because we know that the, the idea with signs is that it's not the object themselves, it's the idea or the truth of the reality that those signs point to. You're driving down the road, you see a red sign, what do you do? You stop, right? You see a triangle, right? You yield or you slow down. Those signs point to a deeper reality, to something bigger. Don't miss 
the signs. Turn to your neighbor right now and say, neighbor, don't miss the signs. Tell them that right now. Don't miss the signs. There's signs all over this story. Before we jump into the story, it's, it's easy to miss the signs. We do this all the time. For me, particularly when I think about missing the signs, I think about uh, my sophomore year uh, of college. And when it comes to relationships with the opposite gender, sometimes more often than not, it's the guys, not the ladies, it's the guys that have a hard time picking up on the signs. Ladies, can I get an amen for that? Okay, we have a, we're a little bit slower in picking up on the cues that the ladies are putting down. So my sophomore year of college, I meet this volleyball player from Marshalltown. And we're hanging out, and, and, and she's in this friend group, and then I'm in this friend group with the guys, and we're all kind of hanging out together and doing our thing. And it's like, oh, this is great. I mean, I'm not even thinking about girls. Like, I'm thinking about what am I going to eat, and do I have any laundry that doesn't smell? So, like, that's my focus my sophomore year uh, of college. I'm not even thinking about girls. And so we started to hang out a little bit, and we, we ended up hanging around each other a little bit, me and this, this gal, and we really enjoyed being with, other, with each other. There we are. Or don't we look nice? We haven't, we haven't, <laughs> haven't changed a bit. There we are. And so we started hanging around uh, each other, and, and she started hanging around more, and I started hanging around more, and we just spent a lot of time together. And she would always be there and listening and everything. And so I'm sitting with a group of guy friends one time, and I'll never forget this moment. They, they go, so John, do you think that this Tiffany gal likes you? And my first response is, no, oh, are you kidding me? Absolutely not. What makes you think that? And the look on their faces was like, do you think that the, 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 the earth is flat or something? Like, are you kidding me? Are you completely blind to this, John? You are missing this. And then they like walk me through it, okay? The signs, just the tip of the iceberg, the signs of what I was missing. They said, John, number one, ever notice how she stays around afterwards after the group leaves to hang out and ask you questions and she listens to you talk? John, no other girl in the history of the world has been willing to listen to you verbally process as much as she does. Right? I, you need to pay attention to the signs. Number two, who has helped you study for every single test? And the reason that you even have over a three-point grade point average at this school is because of this girl. Who? Oh, yeah, that's her. Okay, I'm starting to make sense to me. And they're like, number three, remember a couple weeks ago when she willingly sat beside you during a three-hour and 45-minute extended cut of Lord of the Rings and listened to you make commentary and nerd out about it the entire time? Who does that? And I'm like, oh yeah, she really does like me, right? Completely missed the, I mean, that was, just, that was just the beginning of it, but I completely missed it. They're like, dude, the signs are everywhere. Turn to your neighbor and say, don't miss the signs. Don't miss the signs. The signs are everywhere. And eventually I didn't miss the signs, but if I wouldn't have missed the signs, we probably would have gotten that relationship going a lot sooner, but I was completely oblivious to it. That is what Mark chapter 9 is all about. See, you're not going to forget Mark 9 now. Don't miss the signs. Mark is setting up this story in a way that if you pay attention to the signs, you're not going to miss who Jesus is. The signs are everywhere. And so we pick up the story. Turn now the page to Mark chapter 9, verse 2. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, not Peter, Paul, and Mary, Peter, James, and John, and led them up a high mountain to be alone. So Jesus takes his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, takes his inner circle and leads them up a mountain to be alone. Now you should know that anytime anybody in the Bible, you read a story about somebody going up to the mountain, that is symbolic for they're going to meet with God. 
okay? Moses went up a mountain. Elijah went up a mountain. We'll get to that in a little bit. Jesus goes up the mountain. Now, two other gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of the gospels, two other gospels tell this story as well. Luke adds that they went up the mountain to pray. Can you imagine going up to the top of a mountain and having prayer time with Jesus? How intimidating is that, right? I've heard some people that maybe some of you like really struggle with prayer and you're like, I've heard people say this. I don't know. I kind of struggle with prayer and, and I, when I pray, I don't, I don't really know if God hears me or not, like if Jesus is close to me and if he can really hear my prayers or not. These guys don't have that excuse, right? Imagine you're doing a little popcorn prayer and going around the circle. Okay, Peter, you know, it's your time to pray. Dear, dear Jesus who's sitting across from me, this is really intimidating, right? They have no excuse for whether God hears their prayer, okay? Well, it turns out this is no ordinary prayer time. Watch what happens. Verse 2. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white. I love this detail that's translated here in the NLT, far whiter than any earthly bleach could make them, right? I think about those detergent commercials, right? Far whiter than any mom could make their kids' jeans, right? Than any earthly bleach could make them. Mark is giving us this detail for a reason, and it's the first of many signs. Everybody say signs. So what I want to do is I want to make a little chart. Here's the signs, but then signs point to a deeper reality, right? And there's three signs, and we see the first one here in verse 2. Some translations say transformed, others say transfigured. And the Greek word here for transfigured is metamorpho, metamorpho, which is where we get the word metamorphosis metamorphosis. That's the root of it in the Greek. And that means a change of the form or the nature of a thing or person into a completely different one by natural, or in this case, supernatural means. In other words, Jesus's literal appearance, like Jesus was transformed in that moment. It wasn't like there was some landscaping lights that shone up on Jesus's face at the top of the mountain, right? Or that a little light came over the top of. No, like uh, when you go through a metamorphosis, You literally change your state, like a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. You become something different. That's what happens to Jesus in this moment. He changed in a moment to a glorified or a resurrected state. And why is that so important? Think about it. Peter, James, and John got a glimpse of what a post-crucifixion, post-resurrection Jesus would look like. That means that the disciples are getting a glimpse of the end of the story. Jesus is not going to stay in the tomb, which means that we don't just have a great, Jesus isn't a great teacher or a a philosopher. We don't have that on our hands. We have a God who is literally going to conquer sin and death and rise again. When Jesus is shown here, transfigured in a glorified or a resurrected state, it's pointing us to the end of the story. So the sign here is that Jesus is transformed. But what it points to is this deeper reality that Jesus is our Savior. The disciples didn't realize that in the moment, but now that we're reading that story, we know, oh, all the signs are pointing to Jesus that he is the Messiah. So that's sign number one. Sign number two, if that wasn't overwhelming enough, the disciples read on. Look at verse four. Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking 
with Jesus. Now, just for the record, Elijah and Moses have been dead for thousands of years. Okay? They weren't hanging out camping up on top of the mountain here. Okay? They have been dead for a long, long time. Okay? So imagine you're Peter, James, and John, and you're coming back down after your picnic hike with Jesus back down the mountain, and the rest of the disciples are down at the bottom of the mountain. They're like, hey, dudes, how was your prayer time with Jesus? Anything cool happened? And they're like, oh, nothing much. We had our sack lunch. We had our prayer time. Jesus talked to some dead Bible heroes. Other than that, everything was completely normal, right? This is a really, really big deal. If you are a faithful Jew and you're reading this story, you're like, Moses and Elijah... This is a big deal. We know from earlier in the story, Moses is uh, who we know delivered the law, right? Went up on the mountain, went up on the mountain hmm, to get the law from God. And then Elijah is like the prophet of all prophets, right? And so for thousands of years, it was prophesied that when the Messiah comes, he will be the fulfillment of the law and of the prophets. He will fill the gap. He will stand in between. And so for any faithful Jew reading this story afterwards, there's no way they're going to miss the sign here. Moses, Jesus, and Elijah. This is like the Mount Rushmore of the Christian faith. Up on top of the mountain. In other words, nobody can stand in that gap between Moses and Elijah except the Messiah. Pay attention to the signs. Jesus is in the center of this trio, which means he's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. So the sign is that we've got Moses and Elijah. Those are, that's really long to write. So we're going to call them what their friends call them, Mo and Eli. Okay. So the sign is that they meet Mo and Eli. The reality is that Jesus is not just off to the side. Jesus is at the very center. I wonder, is he at the center for you? What's at the very center of your life? For the Jews reading this story, for Peter, James, and John experiencing this story, they're like, there is no doubt in my mind. He's it. He is the, there, there's no turning. He's the Messiah. Is Jesus the center of your life? Or is he kind of off to the side in the midst of everything else? What's at the center of your marriage? What's at the center of when you have arguments with your spouse? Do you invite the Holy Spirit into that? What's at the center of your parenting? What's the chief motivating factor for how you parent? What's the chief motivating factor for how you spend your money and your time and build your schedule? And every decision that you make, is Jesus at the center? Does he stand at the center of everything that you do and everything that you are? saw a really good example of this this past week, and it was from uh, the most unlikely places. So last week uh, after worship, I have to tell you, this darn NCAA tournament, any March Madness fans out there? Okay, quite a few of you. Good. Any March Madness fans upstairs? You still with me? Okay, quite a few of you, all right? I don't know what the NCAA is thinking, but some of us have church on Sunday mornings, right? What in the world are they thinking scheduling the Iowa game last Sunday at 11.15, Okay. So we get done with the service, and I go back home, and I am spending some time in prayer and meditation in front of my television (laughs) as Iowa is making this historic comeback. There must have been a lot of Hawkeye fans at church last week on Saturday night in the 915 service, okay? They were down 25 
points. This is the biggest comeback in NCAA history, okay? It is amazing. I'm going ballistic in front of my TV, okay? And so they come all the way back. Now, eventually they, they lose, and that's fine. It was a valiant effort. They lost in overtime. But the rest of the day, I'm just mad, and I'm grumpy, and I'm like, we could have been in the Sweet 16, and I'm, I'm a little bitter, and I'm frustrated. I mean, it's Tennessee. Like, who likes Tennessee? They're they're orange and they have ugly striped warm-up pants and like they were they were fouling all cheap fouls like that that's a foul that was a foul that could have changed the whole game right there right it's a foul they, they're just kind of kind of kind of bullies out there a bunch of cheap fouls and and they didn't know that they don't they know that they ruined God's plan right of Iowa getting to the sweet 16 right so I'm just kind of bitter and I'm mad at the Tennessee basketball program I don't even know anything about them I'm just mad because that's what we should do as Christians, is just judge blindly. <laughs> and I'm watching highlight videos later on that day, just like recapping the glory that was that game. And what pops up, the name of this clip says, Tennessee basketball puts faith at the center. <laughs> I kid you not. Tennessee basketball puts faith at the center. And in the middle of my frustration and my bitterness against Coach Rick Barnes and the Tennessee Volunteer Basketball Team, this is what I see. Take a look. Okay, people, let's talk about this a little bit. Here I am in front of my computer trying to find every reason to think that the volunteers from Tennessee have ruined God's plan in the NCAA tournament, and I see that, right? And I get to the end of it, and I cannot help like these guys. Like, maybe I judge just a little bit. I'm like, I, I kind of like this Rick Barnes guy. Like, these guys, they got baptized in the middle of the season, and they were there for each other, and they're creating this kind of environment. And I was thinking to myself, why is this so powerful? Because life is way bigger than the result of a basketball game. Tennessee wins in overtime versus Iowa. They end up losing in overtime in their next game. And I'm sure they, they were heartbroken. These guys' careers are over and it probably stung and hurt a lot. But like he said, there's a bigger victory that matters and is going to last much longer. And I guarantee you, for those 18 to 22-year-old young men, they're not going to remember every single point that they scored. They are going to remember standing around as brothers, watching each other be baptized and experience new life and faith so they can experience a victory in life that is greater than any basketball game. Amen? That's bigger and way more important. That's real. That's what's going to last. That's what's going to matter. And some of you are like, okay, John, that's great. I'm not a college basketball coach. Some of you are parents. A lot of you are parents. When you discipline your kids, are you disciplining them for behavior or are you discipling them to make them young men and women of God? Is there a bigger focus? Is there a bigger goal? Is Jesus at the center of everything that you do? Jesus is at the center of the Tennessee basketball program. Is he at the center of your life? Is he at the center of everything that you do? We'd like to say yes. Faith is the center. But functionally, sometimes, by the way that we live our lives, it's not. A lot of other things get put at the center. We might say it's our faith, but in reality, it's the approval of a boss. And if I don't just crank out 60 or 70 hours a week, I, I don't really know who I am. Sometimes we change careers or people retire. And all of a sudden, I talk to people in their mid-late 60s, and they don't know who they are anymore. 
because the very center of their world was their job. Talk to empty nesters. First few years of being an empty, empty nester, there's an identity crisis because the center of their world was their kids. What's at the center of your life? We might say it's our faith, but really it's an image we're trying to project online. If your kids are younger and involved, sometimes the center of our life for about a decade becomes vicariously living through the performance of our kids in academics, in music, in sports. It's keeping up with the other families. It's the, the approval of an eligible young man or woman on the, on the dating scene. It's keeping up with every... What, what's, at, what's at your center? This is how you know. What gets your time? What gets your attention? And what gets your affection? On a given week, is Jesus at the center of everything that you do? And I wonder, whatever you're putting at the center, is it really filling you up? Like when you're a slave to your work and you keep going back and back, you're a slave to the dating scene, you're a slave to your image and how you look and you feel and your body image, and you keep going back to those things again and again and again, whether it's even good things. The Bible calls these idols, these things that we put at the center, the, the throne of our hearts other than Jesus. When you keep going back to them, are you really getting filled up? Are you full? Are you satisfied? Put Jesus at the center. Right there between Moses and Elijah stands Jesus, not just symbolically. Look at the reality that the sign points to. Is he at the center of your life? So back to the story, back to Mark chapter 9. As if the disciples are not completely in awe, watching Jesus literally glow and talk to dead Bible heroes, there's more, there's more. Back to the story, verse 7. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice not the Google or Microsoft cloud, like the cloud, a real cloud, said, this is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. Any faithful Jew, again, reading about this or hearing this is going to recognize the cloud. Again, when Moses, their hero up to this point, went up to the mountain to get the Ten Commandments from God, what happened? A cloud hovered over the top. And any faithful Jew is going to know that a cloud led the Israelites through the wilderness and a cloud, the glory of God, always hovered over the tabernacle or the special place where the presence of God was. And when Moses is at the top of the mountain and the glory of God or the cloud comes upon him, that was a sign to Israel that this guy has the authority of God. And so when the cloud comes over Jesus, any faithful Jew is going to go, he has the authority of God. Not only that, but the voice says, this is my son, listen to him. The word listen there in the Greek is akouete, and it doesn't just mean listen like I, I, I heard you. It means to listen and obey. God is saying, this is my son whom I love. He is the authority in your life. To not just hear and consider, like, I'll consider what my friends say online, and I'll read some blogs, and I'll see what the popular opinion of the day is. Then I'll pray, see what Jesus has to say about this decision I have to make, and I'll kind of throw it in the mix and then decide. God says the cloud came upon him. The sign is that there was a cloud over the top of the mountain, and the voice of God came. The sign points to the reality that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is not Savior, he's our Lord. And by that, we need the authority, the one who calls the shots 
for you. And this is what I think. A lot of, every, a lot of people want Jesus to be their savior. Very few people truly want Jesus to be their Lord. And here's why I think that is, myself included. We don't want to give up control. Anybody like giving up control? Good thing. We don't want to lie in church, right? We all like to be in control. We believe that somehow when we surrender to the authority of Jesus, that somehow we're going to miss out on the joy and miss out on the fun and miss out on real life. Those of you with young kids know this all too well, right? What's the reason that kids think that we say no and have rules and boundaries? To be a dream stealer, right? It's my son's sixth birthday today. Happy birthday to Caleb. Six going on 14. And uh, yeah, six years. You can clap for him. Absolutely. Uh, Six years ago, he was born on Easter morning. Tried to show up Jesus uh, and get his dad out of preaching on Easter. That was a glorious, a glorious day. The other day, Caleb, we we talk a lot about the street and he runs out and uh, to the driveway and says, Daddy, I have an idea. Let's play basketball in the middle of the street. Okay, let me stop you right there, Caleb, right? Let's play basketball in the middle of the street, and then when the cars come, we'll just get out of the way. And I say, no. Now, in his six-year-old mind, five at the time, his five-year-old mind, he's thinking, Dad, you are a dream stealer, right? You are an ap- the, the reason that you have rules and boundaries, the reason you're the authority, the Lord in my life for right now, is because you're trying to steal all the fun and steal all the joy. As his parent, what do I know the reason that the rules and the boundaries and the authority exist? So you don't die, Right? Most of the rules that we have are so that they can have the best life possible and become the people that God created them to be. Why does Jesus call us to surrender to him as Lord so that he can give us more rules? No, because when we live life his way, that's where the joy comes from. Jesus says, I don't want you to play in the street. I want you to live life inside of the boundaries that I've created for you because that's where the joy and the peace, and if you're looking for pleasure, that's where the pleasure comes from. When Jesus says, you know how I don't want you gossiping or sharing your frustrations with a bunch of other people, if you've got an issue with somebody, you don't go and create a little triangle over here. You go directly to that person. You know why I have that boundary and that rule in your life, that biblical principle that I've given you? It's because I want you to have healthy relationships and marriages and small groups and churches. That's why I have that boundary. You know, Jesus says how I've called you to love and serve your spouse unconditionally without looking for anything in return. (laughs) The reason I have that rule and that boundary, the reason I want to be Lord of your life in that way is because you're never going to be satisfied if you think the primary purpose of your marriage is to be happy and get your needs met. I'm doing this so you have the greatest marriage possible. I'm doing this so you have the best life possible. Jesus says, you know how I ask you to tithe and give the first 10% of your money back to God? Am I doing that because I'm the Scrooge when it comes to money? Absolutely not. I want to set you free from the worry and stress of constantly thinking that I've got to hoard and keep all the money in the world, that it's yours. It was never yours to begin with because money gets its hooks in us. And Jesus says, I want to set you free from that. Jesus says, you know, as the Lord in your life, you know, you know when I talk about that whole remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy? Like have one day a week where you just rest and be together as a family? Some of you are like, geez, John, are you kidding? Sabbath? It's 2019. Do you know how busy we are as a family? Do you know how busy we are as kids? Are you serious? A Sabbath day? 
What is this, the 1500s or something? Nobody does that anymore. We've got, we've got basketball practice and soccer practice and you know, we've got music, you know, everything to go to. We can't, we don't have time for a Sabbath. Jesus says, the reason I want to be Lord in your life is because I want to give you the gift of one day a week remembering that you're not a slave to busyness. You're a child of God. And parents, think about what you're modeling for your kids. If you never step off the treadmill, they're not going to. And they're going to grow up with the idea that a healthy family is the one that goes and goes and goes and goes. Instead of stopping and worshiping God together as a family here today. God doesn't give us rules and boundaries. And Jesus doesn't want to be Lord of our life to steal our joy. It's so he can give it to us. Follow the signs. Jesus is Savior and Lord and the very center of our life. Mark is telling us loud and clear, don't miss the signs. Turn to your neighbor one more time and say, don't miss the signs. Tell him that right now. Don't miss the signs. This is who Jesus is in Mark chapter 9. The only question that remains is, who is he to you? And that brings us back. Remember I told you we were going to come back to Mark 8? Flip back to Mark 8 now. The only question that remains is, well, who is he to you? So back to the story. Jesus is hanging out with his disciples. They're in Caesarea Philippi here in Mark chapter 8. Jesus has just asked, okay, who's Jesus? Uh, who people say the Son of Man is? And, and, uh, and okay, Jesus, you know, the prophet and John the Baptist. And everybody's talking. And Jesus just steps down the middle and says, okay, who do you say I am? And it's got to be like crickets, you know, Everybody's looking at their feet, you know, like nobody wants to answer. And this is where I love Peter. Peter's normally just, his mouth gets him in trouble and he just blurts out. You know, you have those people in your life that just say what everybody else is thinking with no consequences. That's Peter. It just comes out, right? Sticks his foot in his mouth all the time. And I would imagine Peter just kind of steps through the, the disciples and looks right at Jesus and says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Can you imagine being there in that moment? Like he just answered Jesus' question and I met all the other disciples like take a step back and they're like, oh dude, I hope he got it right. You know, like I hope he said the right thing. Like is Jesus gonna be mad at him? You know, like, like what's gonna happen? Instead, Jesus responds this. I love this. In Matthew's version of the story, he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And it's Peter's answer that scholars and theologians for centuries have taken that one response of Peter, and it has been called the Great Confession. Entire scholarly books have been written on that sentence. It's called the Great Confession. You ever thought, why is it called the great confession? Peter just answers the question that you're, you're, you're the Christ, right? The son, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Was it that Peter just said what everybody else was saying was the great confession because Peter was profound? I think it's called the great confession because Peter was real. Because his answer was based on experiencing Jesus for himself. And maybe that's the point all along. In that moment, something welled up in Peter. You ever have one of these moments, you guys? 
in worship and you're singing a song and something just kind of swells up in you. And that's why you kind of look around sometimes and people are putting their hands up in worship. I know at a Lutheran church, right? It's not football season. They're not saying touchdown. They're not airing out the pits. Like they are really into it. Something swells up inside of you and it just comes out like it did for Peter. It's so real. It's authentic to what I'm experiencing. It's, it's a great confession. It's real, true, genuine worship. And my question for you is, is it real for you? Is it real for you? Or are you just going to go through the motions and sing the songs and pray the prayers? Is it real for you? That's the question that was posed to a young guitarist back in 1954 that walked into a small recording studio dressed in black with some canned gospel tunes copied from other artists that he had known, hoping to make it big. And there was nothing wrong with these songs, except they weren't his. He had just stole them from, he was just saying what everybody else was saying. Until the producer had the guts and the courage to call him out and say, it's not real. It's not authentic. It's not you. And thank God that the producer called him out that day or the world would have never known Johnny Cash. Take a look. When Jesus saved me, saved my soul, the very moment he forgave me, he took away my heavy burdens. Lord, he gave me peace within. Well, Satan can't make me doubt it. I won't doubt it. It's real and I'm gonna shout it. Hold on, hold on. I hate to interrupt, but you guys got something else. I'm sorry. I can't market gospel no more. So that's it? I don't record material that doesn't sell, Mr. Cash, and gospel like that doesn't sell. Is it the gospel or the way I sing it? Both. Well, what's wrong with the way I sing it? I don't believe you. You're saying I don't believe in God? JR, come on, let's go. No. I want to understand. I mean, we come down here, we play for a minute, and he tells me I don't believe in God. You know exactly what I'm telling you. We've already heard that song a hundred times. Just like that, just like how you sang it. Well, he didn't let us bring it home. <laughs> bring it home? All right, let's bring it home. He was hit by a truck, and you were lying out in that gutter dying, and you had time to sing one song. Huh? One song people would remember before your dirt. One song that would let God know what you felt about your time here on earth. One song that would sum you up. You telling me that's the song you'd sing. That same Jimmy Davis tune we hear on the radio all day. About your peace within and how it's real and how you're going to shout it. Or would you sing something different? Something real. Something you felt. Because I'm telling you right now, that's the kind of song people want to hear. That's the kind of song that truly saves people. about to play, we ain't never heard it. 
And right after that was the debut of Walk the Line, a song that appealed to secular audiences just as much as it did to those that like gospel. That's the kind of song people want to hear. That's the kind of confession that Jesus was looking for that day from his disciples. Something real, something different, something from deep inside. What song are you singing today? What, 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 what faith are you living through today? Is it, is it somebody else's? Are you going through the motions Sunday after Sunday, singing somebody else's song, vicariously living through somebody else's faith? Or will you sing the song, the unique faith that God has given to you? Will you make your faith your own? Will you slow down and answer the question, who is Jesus for me? That is the reason and the purpose for everything that we do as a church. The reason we gather here every single Sunday. The reason for every ministry and group and class and activity and event and every sticky donut hole that's eaten on Sunday mornings. It's the reason why we do everything that we do so that you would know Jesus in a real and powerful and personal way. Not just what the person next to you is doing, but you. When we sing, when we worship, when we pray, what's going on inside? That's the question. Are you numb to it? Are you going through the motions? Is it the same old song every single time? Or is it real for you? Is it real for you? Reminds me, this past August, we were doing our annual baptisms at the river event that we do with our friends from Celebrate Recovery. And a lot of us here from the church, we go down to the Raccoon River and I get my inner John the Baptist on and I go down there and stand in the middle of the river. And anybody that wants to come can come out and get baptized. And so something that I do, you know, people have their friends and their family on the beach and every single person that comes out, it's a very kind of personal, powerful, intimate moment. And as people come out, I just give them this moment as we're standing in the water together and the sun's shining down, the clouds are kind of coming apart. I give them this moment to say, is there anything that you want to say? Uh, Anything you want to say to God? And pretty much everybody says, no, let's just do this. Not Randy. One of the last guys to come out, Randy comes out and I'd known Randy for a little bit. He had just started getting back into church after decades decades of being estranged from God and from the church. And I asked Randy, I said, is there anything that you want to say to God? And I'll I'll never forget this. I've baptized hundreds of people in the river. Randy goes, oh yeah, I got some stuff to say. (laughs) And I'll never forget, here's Randy with decades of being abused as a child, multiple divorces, addicted to multiple substances, estranged from the church for decades, distanced from his adult children, no relationship with them. And here he is, after getting back into the church for just a couple months, he's standing in the middle of the river. And he's like, oh yeah, I got something to say. And he looks up and it's almost like the sun's coming down and the clouds are kind of parting. And he looks up and this big, tough guy just starts to weep and he says, hey God, it's your boy, Randy. And uh, he's, he's totally coming up with this on the spot. Uh, I just want to thank you so much that I can, I can even be here today. I want to thank you for being my, my Lord and my Savior. And I know that I don't deserve to be here today. I've messed up and I know I'm not perfect and I don't have it all together. 
but I just want to thank you that I can be baptized today. And, and Jesus, I just want to thank you for loving a guy like me. His hands are just raised. I just want to thank you for loving a guy like me. He kind of pulls himself together, and with tears running down his cheeks, he looks over at me as I'm <laughs> weeping as well, and he goes, was that okay? Did I do all right? <laughs> I'm just trying to pull myself together, say, yes, Randy. That was perfect. It was great. Why? Because only you could have said that, Randy. Because it came from somewhere deep inside. It wasn't some canned prayer or something that he'd heard somebody else say. It was the great confession of Randy. It was real. It was the song that only he could sing. It was real for Peter. It was real for Randy. Is it real for you? Is it real for you? Is Jesus at the center of your life? In a moment, we're going to stand and sing, and the band's going to lead us in a final song that we've done many times before, Oh, Praise the Name, and I love it. It tells the story of Holy Week. It tells the story of Good Friday and Easter and everything that Jesus is going to do for us. And my challenge to you as we sing this song, mean it. If you, if you want to just stand in silence and soak it in and speak to Jesus in the quiet of your own heart, that is totally fine. Worship can look like that. Worship can look like dancing in the aisles, and worship can look like raising your arms and everywhere in between. Jesus cares way more about what's going on in here than he cares what's going on out here. Is it real for you? And as we sing this song, think about the words that you're saying and make this your great confession. Make this your response. Who is Jesus? You're the Messiah the son of the living God. You're my savior and my Lord, and I'm putting you at the very center of my life. So let's not just talk about it. Let's sing about it. Let's stand together. Let's worship, and let's sing it out like we never have before. Oh, praise the name.